Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 323. Slow success creates gratitude. Fast success creates ego. Mongo Wilder. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome, my indie film hustlers, to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Black Box. Black Box is a new platform and community that is all about financial freedom for filmmakers like you. If you join Blackbox, you will be transformed from being a worker to being a maker of your own content. And you'll be making steady passive income from the global market. Blackbox currently allows you to upload your stock footage once, get it to many global agencies, and then allows you to share that passive income stream with your collaborators. Whether you want to submit old footage that's been sitting around in your hard drives or create brand new content, Blackbox is for you. It's really quite revolutionary. With Blackbox, filmmakers can concentrate on making great content while Blackbox takes care of all the business BS. Just visit www.blackbox.global to find out more. And today's show is also sponsored by Indie Film Hustle TV, the world's first streaming service dedicated to filmmakers, screenwriters, and content creators. If you want access to filmmaking documentaries, feature films about filmmaking, interviews with some of the top screenwriters and filmmakers in Hollywood, as well as educational online courses all in one place, IFH TV is for you. And what if I told you you could get all of this for free? Just head over to IndieFilmHustle.tv for your free seven-day trial. Now, guys, today on the show, we have Sven Papa from This Guy Edits. He has a very, very, very popular YouTube channel, and he is a master editor doing amazing work, not only editing himself and doing Netflix documentaries and Netflix shows and uh, just a list of movies that he's done over the course of his career, but he's also sharing his wisdom and his experience with his community and the community of filmmakers looking to be better editors. And I love, love, love his work. It's a very unique YouTube channel, and it has grown insanely. So I wanted to get him on the show to talk editing, to talk cutting, and to get these two grizzled, battle-hardened editors together and just talk shop. So if you want to learn more about the process of editing, the creative process of editing, as well as the business of being an editor in today's world, this episode is for you. It is one of my favorite episodes, and we did talk 
a bunch. We get into it deep. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Sven Papa. I'd like to welcome to the show Sven Papa. How you doing, brother? Doing well. How are you, Alex? Good, 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 man. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I am a big fan of what you do on YouTube, and you've turned editing into a cool thing. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. You know, from an old editor. It's a struggle. From one old editor, a salty dog, to another one, man. It's just like, it's not easy making editing cool. And you've done it with your YouTube channel, with this, which is This Guy Edits, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But uh, we're going to get into And so I'm warning everybody listening right now. Uh, you've got two salty dog editors who've been in the business for quite some time, been editing for many, many years. We are going to get into it. Uh, <laughs> we might, we ve- might. We might venture off into the weeds. But stay with us. We'll come back. There might be some tech talk along the way, but we will try to keep it in there and we'll drop some knowledge bombs on you guys as we move forward. So first and foremost, how did you get into the business? Um, I started falling in love with film. Mm-hmm. So little kid going to the theaters and just uh, just wanting to be a filmmaker. It really happened when I actually, I'm originally from Germany, mm-hmm. but I moved to South Africa when I was in my teenager years, like 15. Mm-hmm. And so I was the new kid in school, didn't have any friends, so mm-hmm. I went to the movies. And that's where I then realized, okay, this is a calling. I need to, I need to, what I'm feeling right now in the theater, I want to be part of creating something like this. And then actually specifically the movie Dead Poets Society is sort of the one that made me like, okay, I gotta, I gotta go on this journey. So that's how it started. I did a couple of internships in South Africa, worked for an ad agency, immediately went to the film department in Cape Town worked assisted for a producer for a while there and then i knew i was going to do filming i ended up studying at the university of arts in berlin Mm -hmm. they didn't really have a film program there it was commercials and i actually once i graduated i built an agency with two other partners and within a year i knew this isn't for me and (laughs) they they bought me out. I went to America. I ended up studying at the American Film Institute. No, not a bad, um, not a bad school, sir. Yeah, I got lucky. Got in that. I I didn't study editing. I studied producing. Didn't like that either. Um, graduated. Bought myself a Mac and the first Final Cut that came out. Final Cut one. You were on Final Cut one. I didn't jump yes. on until like two point something. Uh, is when I first saw it. Yeah, no, I was I was right there. Did a project, an indie project, um, where I helped a friend. I did like a live webcast of the behind the scenes as he was making the film in Pennsylvania. And then the second gig that I got was basically a paid gig where I worked for James Cameron's company to do a webcast of his next film project. And doing all that in Final Cut. So let's 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 pause for a second. Yeah. Did you say Jimmy Cameron? Yes, I did. Okay, so James, what did, yeah. so what movie was it, and what did you do, and were you on like you were on the set with James Cameron while he was shooting stuff? I was on the Russian research vessel going out to the Titanic and did a <sighs> like live webcast as he was going down to the ship and taking like three D imagery inside of the ship. Um, that was the three uh, D documentary called Ghosts of the Abyss. Yeah, I. Um, so I went through that journey. I thought he was going to throw me off the boat because I was the guy sticking a camera into his face while he's trying to figure out what his movie is about. Right. 
um, survived that on the IMAX film and then eventually became an editor as well. And yeah, there are three editors on Ghost of the Abyss and that was my first credit as an editor. That's not a bad first credit, my friend. Yeah, it was cool. It was a good start. It can only go down from there, right? So <laughs> I, I, I did enjoy that journey. It was three and a half years. Oh and my gosh. And did you, and what was the one, what's the biggest lesson you learned from Mr. Cameron? Um, to have confidence, mm-hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. So I really admired that he takes your work for what it is and not for what you've done in the past or what your reputation is. So mm-hmm. I was able to really show some stuff and immediately get sort of that feeling, oh, he's he's responding to it. Like we're having a creative um, conversation about something. It doesn't matter that I'm just a guy out of film school and I don't know anything. Mm-hmm. And so that really gave me confidence just for the rest of my career. Well, yeah, I mean, if you if you ever survived James Cameron for three and a half years, the beginning of your career, I think you're... <laughs> I think you're pretty good for the rest. The first three weeks were really rough. Like I, I might have would have broken there, and that would have been it. But you held on. You held on. No, I've had a few people on the show who've, who've worked with Cameron, uh, like Russell Carpenter, and and uh, and a couple of the directors who uh, that worked with him. And I, anytime I hear James Cameron, like I need to hear the stories. Like what is it? And you were in a very unique time in his in his career because he was still doing the Jacques Cousteau thing. He was still going yes. out there doing that stuff. This is before Titanic, right? Or is it after? No, this Titanic? is after. after. This and is it's after. after Titanic, before Avatar. So yeah. there was that this period of like eight years where he was just basically Jacques Cousteau yeah. <laughs> going out. Into yeah, I, I met Michel Cousteau, mm-hmm. and they were working on various projects that they were trying to set up for TV stations. And I, I cut some of those sizzles during that time. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Like that's that's a great story. And we just got started. Um, now, talk to me about this guy edits because uh, you know I, 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 I my 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 fingers are in you know on the pulse. Hopefully, I try to be on the pulse of everything going on in the film world on YouTube and on Instagram and social media and all that kind of stuff. And you came across my path. I was like, well, this is interesting. I just haven't. This is this is nice. I love the branding. I love what you were doing. I loved your voice because it was a unique kind of not like like literally your voice, but like your your voice of what you were trying to do. I was like, wow, this is actually good. And he knows what he's talking about, which is always a lovely thing to see <laughs> when you turn on a YouTube channel. Um, so, how did it even come to to be? Well, there's various factors. I mean, I already had this uh, affinity towards new media anyway, because mm-hmm. I did a broadcast before YouTube existed. Um, I wish I would have like gotten back to YouTube much faster than I did. Same but it really, it really started with my daughter, who at the time was in elementary, and she had a YouTube channel doing My Little Pony, and it took off. She was like one of the top 10 MLP YouTubers. What's an, M- uh, what's an MOP? MLP is My Little Pony. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Like little, so we're not, we're not down. We're not down with the, <laughs> the lingo, the little pony lingo. Sorry. I know that's a uh, whole – look, my daughters love Little Pony too. But that I heard that My Little Pony world, it's, it's kind of like Lego or Star Wars. Yeah. It's like its own language. It's a subculture. Completely. There are like MLP movies out there that are just going gangbusters and you never hear about them. But right. um, they're in theaters and people show up. <laughs> So that's when I realized, oh, this is like this. Now I understand what the potential of new media is. Mm -hmm. 
And so then I started experimenting. I did a YouTube channel just about my gardening. I have chickens, that kind of stuff. That's awesome. I got a couple of videos that like immediately had like 100,000 views. So I'm like, oh, and I can make money with this. And and this is the chicken videos. Chicken videos. (laughs) That's awesome. So then I'm like, okay, I got to take this more seriously. And at the time, I was doing a feature. It's the third collaboration with director Mark Weber. Our first one was a Sundance film called The End of Love. This was the third time working together. And I just pitched this idea to him and said, let's take this editing process online and have people like grow an audience already on this journey of finding this film. And then by the time the film comes out, we'll probably already have some form of following. Who knows what's mm-hmm. going to happen? Mm-hmm. He's like, all right, do that. Cut like a couple of episodes. Don't release them yet. Just show me what's happening. I did that. He was shooting in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I showed him three episodes and he's like, this is amazing. I'm learning something here. Um, you have carte blanche. Here are a couple of scenes we shouldn't be showing, but mm-hmm. just do whatever you want and go crazy. That's how the channel started by doing just like watch me edit sessions. And it's, it had sort of a niche audience at the time. Yeah. It's like, we were in a couple of blogs, like no film school Mm -hmm. and so on. And it, it kind of was like 20,000 views was like a really good video at the time. And then the film finished, we released it and like, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with this channel now? And I, I noticed this trend of the video essay. So I'm like, okay, let's make it more about like, what are some of these lessons, the bigger lessons about creative storytelling? There was like, I, I noticed there was a lack of creative storytelling. It was all about software and what's the best key, uh, keystroke to get somewhere and i'm actually not really technical at all like if you if we're going to get technical i'm going to just <laughs> blow out pretty fast um i really use the tool just to tell the story and right. i drive it pretty hard but i never spent the time to like really dig in and understand what's the most efficient way to cut mm-hmm. i just i learn it by just telling the story so that was my angle on it it's just to focus on characters emotions and story and in a way that sort of then took it to the next level. I did videos like what's the one thing that can immediately improve your editing and it's basically always tell a story and just showing how very like some there are a lot of editors out there, but there are very few that really understand the concept of storytelling. There are like six things that I point out. Mm-hmm. Um in a video like that, I think it has like three hundred thousand views. And once I understood okay, this is where I can like make editing more accessible to just filmmakers, not just editors, to maybe even people that just love watching movies. That's when when the channel took off. I did a video on Dunkirk that has 500,000 views. Yeah. And it's all just about editing. I'm like, I'm just looking at the scenes and mm-hmm. I'm like taking the scenes apart. Mm-hmm. And, and people and people yeah. want to watch that, of course. People it's, want to watch it. It's yeah. insane. Now, yeah, you got over two hundred thousand followers on your YouTube channel and growing daily, uh, and and growing pretty exponentially too. I remember when I first saw you, you were under a hundred thousand, so it's been growing fairly quickly as well. Yeah, it's definitely. Uh, that's that's YouTube. It's like it's growing exponentially. Once you have a couple of milestone evergreen videos mm-hmm. that work. Uh, the YouTube algorithm just keeps sharing them and there's value there. That's just, it's the value exists. Even if you don't see the video for a year 
mm-hmm. um, once it's released, it's it's still there's still something entertaining or something to be gleaned from it. Yeah, without without question. And do you find that? And I always love asking editors this. You know, you came in uh, at a time where I mean, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you? Oh, I'm 47. Right. So exa- you're actually a little older than I am. So you you would you would have seen this going going in where. When I was coming up and when you were coming up, we, you know, it, it was Avid. Like you had to yeah. get, you had to jump on an Avid. And and jumping on an Avid was extremely expensive. You had to go to a big post house. You had to, you couldn't practice. Like practicing, yeah. you had to jump in early morning or after work or, you know, work out some sort of deal where you could get time in the suite. Now, I yeah. mean, literally you can edit on your iPhone. Uh, but back then it took a long time to do. And it, and the, the budgets for... Um, for editors, excuse me, the salaries for editors used to be a lot harder because it was just less of us doing this work. But then Final Cut showed up, this ruffian that was called Final Cut. And I kept hearing Final Cut come up and come up in my market where I was editing. And I'm like, but I'm an avid editor. They're like, oh, we just got a Final Cut system. And I'm like, let me just check this out. And when I checked it out, I was like, holy crap, this is amazing. And how much is it? And I can build my own system. It was because of Final Cut that was able to open up my first post house because I had, and it was so funny. I had my my neighbor had bought a seventy thousand dollar Avid, mm-hmm. and I had spent I think eight to ten thousand just to build out my whole suite. Yeah, and I was paid off within a couple months of work. And he was like paying payments like it was a mortgage payment. And he's like, Man, I should have gone Final Cut. I'm like, Yeah, you should have because no one cares. It's business. But my question is, I know because we're going off off the rails here. Um, my question is. The wonderful thing about Final Cut is that it opened the door to everybody to become an editor. The horrible thing about Final Cut is that it opened the door for everyone to become an editor. So then all of a sudden, what was once a market where you can get paid a salary that you can live off of, now you're hustling against kids who have no idea what they're doing. They might know how to operate the system, but they might not know how to tell a story. And trying to explain that to a producer is very difficult. What's your take on that? Well, first of all, I I mean – Final Cut is the gateway drug that got me my jobs. I yeah. mean, I made most of my money on Avid, right? Uh, but I couldn't. I didn't. I didn't study editing. I mm-hmm. had to learn Avid mm-hmm. on the job. I was already an editor on Ghost of the Abyss, not knowing the Avid all that well, <laughs> and taking a course at Moviola at yeah, night. Yeah, that's what I did uh, too. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, I wouldn't have had this career without Final Cut. So right. I'm saying I don't care if it's if the masses have access, I think it's a good thing. Oh, it is. And, and it will self-regulate immediately. Yes. You will have a producer who might be inexperienced say, Oh, I have this editor who's going to charge me 20 bucks an hour. And I have this editor who's going to charge me 50 bucks an hour. I'm going to go with the guy that charges 20 bucks an hour and then go through that experience. And most of the time, the guy that values his time at 20 bucks an hour, um, is not worth his time. Or her time, and so you just gotta you gotta go through that process with every producer. The ones that know understand. Okay, I'm not paying you to run a piece of software. I'm paying you to solve my problems to make sure that the film that I shot that has problems, you're protecting me and you're making sure this is the best it can be. And that is so much more valuable. That means I need to spend less time in the editing bay going through that painful process of making something work. And I can trust that you can make this work. And 
I think that will never change. So I think it's good. More people can tr have a go at it. And so that will mean that more great people will come out of this. And that's happened in every aspect of our business, whether it be cameras, you know, and you know, DPs all of a sudden now because I own a red, I'm a DP. It's kind of like, yeah. oh, just because I own my own editing system, I'm a editor or I own my own DaVinci, now I'm a colorist and they have no idea how to, to do it. Just yeah. because you could afford the, the Porsche doesn't mean you know how to drive it. Um, yeah. And, the only way that you will learn is by doing it. So correct. if you have cheap tools and you can mess up a lot, you'll get there eventually if you have the drive. Absolutely. No question. Now, you've obviously worked a, a lot with editors and seeing new editors work. What are three mistakes that all new editors make? Are you referring to a video that I made? I have no idea um, what you're talking about, sir. Okay, good. <laughs> well, in that video, the, the mistake number one is um, they don't look at the footage before they start editing. So that would be the first thing. Like, see everything that you have and start selecting. I think selecting is more important than the actual putting it together. If you have a system where you know, okay, these are the great moments. This is how I felt when I saw it the very first time. And I'm going to make sure I won't forget about this in terms of building select reels or marking it, writing it down, whatever your system is. You need to make sure you remember how you feel the first time that you see the footage and see it all before you start editing so you're not stuck. You're not editing yourself into a corner. You've seen a little bit. You like have a hunch. You start cutting away, and now you're stuck there. And you're not, you're not telling the best possible story that's out there. So that's number one. Number two is, this is very specific, the lack of using J and L cuts. So really understanding <laughs> at what a J cut is and how it helps to make that cut invisible and make it flow in a way that it feels natural, like just a head turn. So a J cut is where the audio comes before the video. Right. So somebody already starts talking before we cut to them. And you don't have to use that all the time, but when you use it correctly, you can make a scene just flow. It's smooth. It smooths it all out. Yeah. And the last one is to not have a workflow or not test the workflow. So just going through spending an hour before you start cutting your next short or feature and just going from taking the footage into the system, figuring out how you're going to organize it, figuring out cutting a little test scene, outputting that and giving that to whatever the end product is, whether you get, go to DaVinci and a DCP or whatever it is, just do a test run of the entire workflow chain before you commit to it because it's ever-changing. Every time I start a new feature, there's a new camera, there's a new software upgrade, there's a new compression. So I cannot keep up with what's happening technically. I need to use what's the best technology at the moment that it's available and I need to learn it right away through this test. Yeah, I was, that was one of the questions I was gonna ask you. Can you please discuss the importance of understanding post-production workflow? I've been yelling and screaming from the top of the mountaintop how ridiculously important it is for filmmakers to understand workflow. And a lot of times editors say, oh, I can, I can do, I'm a post-supervisor. I can, I can run through this whole workflow for you. But from camera to edit to color to final deliverable, and then not to mention audio as well, getting those audio files out, bringing yes. them back in and putting it all together, what an online editor is versus a creative editor, and that whole process it's not complicated, but you've got to go through it because if not, you will, you could, I mean, I literally remember 
a film. I'll never forget this film. It was a wrestling film when The Red, remember when The Red showed up mm-hmm. and the workflow was uh, challenging to say the least. And they, there's this poor kid who had shot like a $250,000 feature. Had been, it's been in his hard drive for yeah. about a year and a half because he could not find anyone who could understand how to get the workflow right. And I, he came to me because he heard I was one of the red, red guys that could handle the workflow. And I looked at him, I'm like, it's going to cost this much, dude. I, can't, I mean, I can't. This is going to be, yeah. it's, it's like I almost got to recut this from scratch. Like, you know, match cut it, you know, by yeah. eye, because they didn't even have time code on their damn reference file. That they, I mean, it was just ridiculous. And he's, oh, and it, I, I finally came out, but it took him two and a half years. Why? Because they didn't test workflow. Yeah. I had a funny story is I actually turned on a movie because I looked at the red dailies. And I'm like, this this looks awful. I didn't understand what, oh, back, oh, back, is, oh, originally? what flat is. <laughs> and I'm like, who shot this? This is terrible. This is terrible. It looks all <laughs> bland. <laughs> I'm not editing any of this. It took me a while to, oh, maybe there's a thing like a LUT or whatever. <laughs> so it's like I talk about workflow, but once I've done the test i don't understand any of it like i just need to know it's working the sound mixer at the end is happy and Mm -hmm. then i just leave it up to the post supervisor or the assistant but we need to make sure um we we try it out before it goes i just did a documentary on premiere and was the first time cutting on premiere and i came in late so the workflow was set we Mm -hmm. delivered the film at the end and then they tried to get to Pro Tools, and it took two weeks to figure this step out because mm-hmm. nobody had tested, and that was a very expensive delivery on that end. Oh yes, I've oh god, I, I have. I'm sure you have horror stories as well as I do. I mean, we could talk hours about horror. We should do a whole episode of editing horror stories yeah. <laughs> with Sven and Alex. <laughs> I mean, we could just talk for days. And and the funny thing is, it's not just on independent films that I've, I've, I've been on like multi-million dollar jobs that they didn't do this simple workflow test. And it costs them just tens of thousands of dollars or if not a yeah. hundred, even one even costs over a hundred thousand dollars because of the time, because of and we haven't even talked about VFX. And how to import and prep VFX and get those out to the plates, get the plates out to the VFX guys and have them come back in and how that gets incorporated and all that. Uh, it's it's mind-blowing. Yep, yep. <laughs> now, um, are there any tips that you have to the directors listening in, uh, out there in the audience on how to properly work with an editor? Because there is a there's a way to do it and there's a, not a way to do it and, and how to become a partner with that person. And he's your creative, he or she is your creative partner in this because you're essentially as the editor rewriting the movie. That's the yeah. last draft of the film. Well, I have a preferred way, but I'm not saying this is what the director should do. The director needs to do what works for her. Um, sometimes it does mean that, uh, he or she sits next to me and watches every cut that I make. That's well, not my fun. preferred way. That's a fun. That's fun, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, my preferred way is that, and this might not happen on the first go around. You might need to work on a couple of projects with the director. But my preferred way is that the director goes off, gives me the footage. We have a very broad discussion about what the film is about. What's what's the intent? What's the vision? What's the point of view? 
and I'll keep that in mind. I'll read the script and I throw the script out and I start cutting the scene. And then when, whenever I see problems, when I feel like, oh, I need to shape the performance, I need to punch up the, the script, I need to pull back on maybe some stuff that's very obvious, that's overwritten, I need to remove this. I'd like to already in that first pass give it my best shot and really tell the story the way that I see it and pitch it back to the director. And then my the position shifts. Once that first cut is done where sort of I had my editor's cut, then I become the listener and it's all about figuring out what the director wants and helping him or her to get there. But it, having said that, that's really that's a that's a shortened process where it's really important for the director to be part of this process of finding the film. So sometimes you actually have to show everything that was shot, put in every line, put everything out there so that the director can see, oh, this might not be working as I thought it would be. To to shortchange that process can sometimes delay things you have to go back. So I'm cutting a feature right now, first time director, first time we're collaborating on it. Luckily, he was able to have somebody cut the feature exactly the way that it was done in the script while he was shooting it. And then we looked at this cut together. And then we could have, a like within two days, we could figure out how we're going to restructure the film and how we're going to like change certain things like this. There's a certain setup that just doesn't work in my point of view. And the director agreed and we need to cut around it. We need to set it up differently. And so when I get to cut this now, I can immediately take more liberty. And I mean, I love to immediately go in there and try and fix things. And so do you, you would agree that you should do an assemble cut of like literally what the script says first. You should do it if you're working with a director for the first time and you're really finding that relationship. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can cut some corners if you already have goodwill and trust built in. And like with Mark Weber, we've worked on three films together. At this point, he, he doesn't even need to see certain things, why I made certain choices. He, mm -hmm. he trusts he just, you. He just wants to see what, like, what, if it's working on the screen right now, that's all he needs to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we do go back into detail at certain things where he feels like, oh, this, there was something else here or this isn't quite working for me. Let's go back and dig in. But at the beginning, yes, absolutely. Show the process, show the assembly cut with everything in it. Do you – and th th this is a little old editor trick and I'm, I'm curious if you've ever done it uh, – that you actually will purposefully make a bad cut or a bad edit – to leave in that mistake so then the producer or the director goes, oh, you need to change that just so they have a feeling that they have now done something as opposed to them going after something that you really feel passionate about. Now, that's more like in commercials and music videos. I've done that a lot, too. But sometimes features, I'll like even in color, when I color grade sometimes, I'll just like, oh. Oh, I didn't thank you for it. I didn't even know I did that. Sorry. Uh, just it's a, it's a psychological trick, but it gives them a feeling like I have to say something because I'm the director, I'm the producer. You could deny right. to say it at all if you if, if if that will hurt your income stream at all, sir. <laughs> no, I I haven't done it in a while. But you had done it. You have done it. I have done it. I've used this strategy and it backfired. Several times. Where suddenly, what happened? What happened? Suddenly, it stays in the film. Oh, like, you got to, but you have to make it so bad that even <laughs> the 
just crazy as producer will never see. Yeah, no, it's, you can never predict what people <laughs> note on. It's it's very hard. But I do I do show certain things where I feel like, well, this is going to change. Yeah. Like this is not going to stay this way. But we need to keep it in right now. We need to get there. Gotcha. Now do, do that. <laughs> A safe, politically correct answer, sir. I appreciate that. Sure. <laughs> now, what is uh, what is it about editing that you love the most? Um, it helps me find the story. Mm-hmm. So I'm I have a hard time understanding story when I just write it or mm-hmm. read it. It's the footage that speaks to me. So it's for me. It, these are the building blocks that I can use to find a story. And so the most exciting thing for me is that most of the time the story is quite different from what the original intent is. So I tend to always go for, oh, this is a, I have this inclination here. Let's go after this. And because some of the most exciting stuff happens when you're discovering it, it's not because you wrote it that way. I mean, it happens too, Mm -hmm. but you have to be really, really good as a writer to create moments that are just like fresh, unbelievably uh, insightful and surprising. Uh, oftentimes, as an audience, the audience is pretty smart. They can figure out what you're trying to do here. So you need to you need to hide it a little bit more in the editing, or you need to find things that just sort of happened on their own. Um, like I was just talking to somebody about. I don't know if this is PC, but uh, on the movie Whiplash, mm-hmm. uh, J.K. made a mistake line reading where he mm-hmm. he flopped the line, and they ended up using it in the film. And um, it's a, it's about the pig that yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. if um, you know. Yeah. Um, so he refused to do the line again. He wouldn't wanted it to be in the film. Apparently, I don't know. But the director just loved it. And then they, they sort of snuck it in from, from another take into that one. And so that's the kind of stuff that you can't come up with. It just happened. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's exciting to me. That's what I love about editing. Yeah, because there is things in the editing process when like that aren't on the paper, that aren't on the day of the shoot. Like you just kind of find the magic. Like this one thing happens and, it, and like that perfect example, one line that was a throwaway all of a yeah. sudden becomes the, the thing. I always love, and this is just me, when you're editing a head turn or you're mm-hmm. editing the arm movement between cuts, so it kind of makes it a little bit of a smoother cut. Yeah. When you nail it, this is just something, this is so editory. This is now that we're in the weeds here. This is something that only editors would really understand is when you, two completely different takes, two completely different angles, but it looks seamless. Yeah. There's not, There's such a satisfaction with that cut. <laughs> It's nice. Cutting on the action is a, is a nice little uh, tool to make uh, edits seem invisible. But mm-hmm. I just recently learned from an interview by Walter Murch that he doesn't do that necessarily. Mm-hmm. He actually completes the action in one take and then he cuts. And he said he does that because he feels like if you're cutting on the action, it actually doesn't complete the thought or the intent of the actor and it felt felt feels better to him many times to to uh, have somebody like sit down and not cutting on the actual sit. sit but have him land and then cut 
And I thought that's a really interesting take that he has. I have to watch for that more and see if, if maybe once in a while it does make sense for the and, and also the action in one shot and then do the cut. Yeah, I guess it also depends on the kind of movie it is. Like if it's an action movie, I think Your Total Wine and More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible eight thousand wines and twenty five hundred beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. At T-Mobile, you don't have to choose between a great network and the best prices. We give you both. Switch your family of three or more from AT&T or Verizon to T-Mobile Essentials and you'll save up to 50% off your current service and smartphones. Bring your current phones to T-Mobile and we'll pay them off up to $450 each. Visit T-Mobile.com to find out how to save up to 50%. Up to $450 via virtual prepaid card for eligible device payoff. Allow 15 days. Savings may vary. See T-Mobile.com. Gat cutting on action works a lot better than if it's a... If it's cold, uh, was it? What is that movie? Uh, cold Mountain, the one he did. Yeah. Cold, yeah. yeah, yeah. If it's Cold Mountain, not, not as much when you're in a cabin somewhere. But if you're doing uh, Bad Boys Three, I think you're going to probably want to cut. If you're doing a Michael Bay film, you're cutting on the action. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know when you're cutting in a Michael Bay movie. This I have no concept. <laughs> have you ever done a video on on Michael Bay's editing style? I, I've taught a lesson on chaos cinema in. Oh. in in college about Michael Bay. So yeah, maybe that's, that should be a good video, but it, uh, there's not going to be much love for his editing. You know what? Okay. And, and we could, we, I want to talk about this for a second because I, cause I, you know, I've, you, know, you and I are both, you know, you know, um, students of the, of cinema. We watch cinema yep. and, and seeing the styles and the come, come and go. And Michael Bay does get a pretty horrible rap. He is known as like, you know, you don't want to be that guy. But with that said, with that said, um, I personally think he's a genius in the sense mm-hmm. that you, you you might disagree with his films, you know, and the way he does it and all that stuff. But if, if movies change, action movies changed from the moment that Bad Boys and The Rock were made. Yeah, those are the two movies that changed a, all action movies. Like great Tony films, by the way. Oh, go Bad Boys and and The Rock is still probably arguing by his, my favorite of his films. I do love yeah. Armageddon, but that's just me. Um, <laughs> I, it's just a space, in my, a space in my heart for Armageddon. I know it's ridiculous, but I still do love it. But after Bad Boys and The Rock, it changed the way action movies were shot. It changed the way, and everybody pretty much was trying to chase the dragon with him. They kept, kept mm-hmm. trying to chase his his style. And you could see that with Peter Berg's movies and, and so many other Fuqua's films. And they all kind of, he set the standard kind of like what Tony Scott did with Top Gun. And it kind of, you could go all the way back to to Tony Scott and Top Gun that kind of changed the game too. Cause there wasn't anything before Top Gun even remotely looked like that, you know? So, and the editing has a lot to do with that. Like how he cuts, how, why they cut. It's not your standard story structure editing. he, He's all about the spectacle. He's all about the the motion, the emotion, as opposed to the context. Is like if you watch, I was watching um, Bad Boys Two, and that whole sequence uh, in the highway when the cars are falling on top of them, and 
you, you just have no idea. There's no reference point of where you are in, in the movie. But it yeah, works. I'm completely confused. But it works for whatever reason. Normally, you would like, you have to set the establishing shot so the audience understands what's going on. You, all of a sudden, you see, you see a tire. You see a car. You see a face. You see a gun. It, it's And I guess we just kind of connect it. What's your feeling on that? Well, I mean, I think there's a difference between The Rock and like a Transformer movie oh, no, where yeah, I, yeah. I just don't know where I am. <laughs> I don't know why I'm looking at this person. I don't know if they're looking at each other. Right, right. What yeah. he just said, anybody yeah. can hear. Yeah. I'm just utterly confused. And it's just sort of then the, the action just like rolls over me. Right. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm not as engaged as when I watch Mad Max, where like the oh, eye tracing is God. just perfect. Oh, man, and Max, from every cut, I know exactly who the villain is, where the motion is going from where to where. Um, and it's more efficient that way as well. I think Mad Max is actually cut way faster than any Transformer movie, but it still works because somebody has an eye exactly on where where's the the audience looking at each frame when we make the cut, that we make sure that the eyes are still in that same spot of the frame mm -hmm. and they don't have to reorient themselves. They don't have to figure out like the, the 180 where we are in, in the, in the scene, <laughs> all these things that you have to do in transformers. If you want to figure out what's going on. But and, if, if you study, look, if you go, if you watch transformers one, And yes. then you watch the last Transformers. Oh my God, it's like night and day, like changing. Of the, it, it, he's gotten, I feel he's gotten a little bit more drunk on his power. So he yes. can kind of go as, and he just does what, because every time he puts something out, it just makes a billion dollars and he doesn't care. Um, but I think and have you seen how many editors he has? Oh, he, he goes through like, them like what? Five or six editors working on, on this movie at the same time. <laughs> They're just throwing stuff on the timeline. To see and then what happens, and so by the time they're done, they have no like. It, to me, it feels like they they don't even. There's no nothing that they can like hold on to in terms of plan edit the scene. It all just it's just a, a and there's no no ownership in there. Yeah. Which I mean, it just from watching one. It, video where I see him talking to his editors and they're all on notepads trying to figure out what the hell they're going to do with the scene now after he watched it. Um, I've, I think I saw that video too and I was watching it too. I was like, Jesus, this is insane. It isn't, it's insane. This is his process though. But like, but that, but I think Mad Max is a perfect uh, example of a movie that is extremely chaotic And extremely quiz. You got visuals coming at you at a mile a minute. Yeah. But for whatever reason, it's not as exhausting as like I stopped watching the Transformers movie. Like I think I stopped at three. I was like, I can't even, yeah. I can't even watch this. I just can't uh, because it's it, it's just exhaust visually exhausting. Like I would, I can only imagine trying to watch it in a theater. You would just be like, oh, it would just be too much. Yeah. But but Mad Max, man. I mean, I mean, the reason is Margaret Sixel who cut the film. Right. She, I mean, she's the wife of the director, which George Miller, I think. Yeah, George Miller. Yeah. And and she, they just he trusts her to do the right thing, and she has a sensitivity towards action that is I I don't see any other editor that 
were able it would have been able to cut this movie this way because she really I mean she went through the entire footage took her three months to just go through the footage select everything it's a lot of cameras and, <laughs> and just I mean they manipulated every shot there's there's hardly any shot that's running at true 24 frames a second oh no they yeah. sped up they speed up they, they speed up they oh. slow-mo if oh. they feel like it's lacking they do something to make sure it holds up and the eye tracking is perfect, the center framing, mm-hmm. and the entire movement throughout the film, like from the beginning to the end, the way that the action moves at the beginning from left to right, at some point they turn around and they go right to left and then they go right again. It's basically three movements in this film in terms of the action. And You're right. this, is, this is all by design. This is a director who has a vision, who storyboarded this whole thing through, and and an editor that just completely is on board and is a strong collaborator that can uh, just support this vision 100%. And as directors, you know, a lot of directors, like myself, I edit my own work. Uh, Mm -hmm. I've had had the occasion to work with editors on projects. Rarely, but it happens. And I always find it being so refreshing – to work with someone I can collaborate with because it's ex- editing is exhausting. It's an exhausting process. It's a very time consuming process. It's exhausting. And I, it is hard as a director to be, uh, you know, I can, I, I can, I, I'm, I'm too invested. So sometimes yeah. over the years I've gotten better at this, but like, but it took me six hours to shoot that shot. I can't, I have to leave it in. And the editor's like, I don't care if it took you six months, it doesn't work out, you know? And that's kind of what you need sometimes. Uh, so all for all of those, you know, director editors well, out there sometimes it helps if you have to work fast i mean i saw your film and <laughs> I, I didn't realize that you spend only that little time cutting it and that you also edited yourself yeah, right. and it's tight it works thank and you that means a lot coming from you he's any by the way he's talking about on the corner of ego and desire guys it's he got a he got a, a sneak preview nice when is that coming out by the way um i'm in i'm in the middle of signing a deal right now going back and <laughs> forth with my attorneys and if i do get it with this distribution deal, uh, I'll go theatrical. So it's going to be really fun. It's going to be a small theatrical run, which I'm really nice. super excited about. Well, thank you for showing it to me. But it it felt like, I mean, it didn't feel like you needed another two, three months of editing and re-editing to figure this movie out. Thank and you. And sometimes that you're on a deadline, that's the greatest thing that can happen to you. That's what I love about YouTube. It's like I, I want to make a video within a week. So whatever happens, happens. And sometimes they turn out great just because I couldn't really think about it that much. It's all instinct. It's all instinct. Yeah, it's all instinct. And I think also because, you know, you and I have been editing for so many years, it is, it's it's subconscious at this point. It is something that we we have all this experience and we have all these tools that we put in our toolbox over the years as an editor that you just flow. And it's just kind of like, you know, a painter painting or a musician playing the guitar. We just kind of riff. And we yeah. just kind of see things like, okay, this goes here, this goes there, that goes here. And that takes time. That takes yeah. a lot of time to develop that. Um, and that's why when I told you, I'm like, yeah, I cut that in about 10 days and uh, you know, I had a trailer done. like Because I, I just didn't have – it wasn't a deadline. I just – I was done. I was like, okay, you know, it's done. And, I, and it didn't, I didn't just cut it one take. That was a rough cut. Then I had people come in. Uh, then I had some things ch- cut out. But – I had an assemble cut. If you could believe it, I actually had to cut out seven minutes out of the whole movie because wow. it was just fat. <laughs> I, had to, I had to just trim it down to tighten things up and it worked. But no, that means a lot coming from you. That, uh, that definitely means a lot. So I appreciate it. Yeah. 
And that goes back to what I was saying before. Like, I'd like to give it my best shot the first time around because mm -hmm. I know this, like what you're saying, it's all instinct. Like, I don't want to. I don't want to slow down for the instinct and just, oh, we're going to make it like everything that was shot in the original plan. I want to already take advantage of this instinct and immediately make it work. And so hopefully the director is open to this idea with the caveat, we can go back and try anything. Mm -hmm. But that first go around, really trust your editor if you feel like it's a good one to just go at it and, and be ruthless. I think a lot of times, too, as editors, we second-guess second guess ourselves a lot. Yeah. Uh, it's part of the – it come, kind of comes with the territory. But so many times in my career, it's always the first, the first instant cut is the one that works. And I would spend an hour recutting it. And at the yeah. end of that hour, you're just like, son of a bitch, it was perfect the way it was. And I had to yeah. go back <laughs> – Usually the first cut is pretty good. It's like 85%. Right. And then it goes down. Like you're trying to fix it to get it up to that 90, 95%, which is really hard. So it goes down to 60, 70, 50%. It starts getting worse and worse because you start thinking. It, at some point it's going to come back up and you're going to get there eventually. But it's going to be a, a, just a valley of misery for a long time before oh. you get it even back up to where it was originally. I, I think uh, depending on the kind of story you're trying to tell and the kind of film it is, uh, especially when you're editing, a lot of it – I, I love going on instinct now because uh, I feel <laughs> I feel safe and comfortable in my own instincts at this point and in my own experience. So when I, I go, I, I, I actually rather not think tremendously yeah. heavily about it. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, will, will we work it? But just to kind of flow off that instinct, again, yeah. it takes time to build. I think it's the it's the best. And, and, and with my films that I've done recently, it's exactly how I did. I cut them really quickly. Faster yeah. than I should have probably, but I but they just rolled because I was like, dee, 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 dee. and I don't know if you've had the experience, I'm sure you have when you're directing something, and then you you know the footage already. You've already got the selects almost in your head where you could just like, okay, boom, 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 boom. And you move so quickly. It's a very interesting experience directing and editing, especially yeah. if you've been an editor for a long time and you start off as an editor. Yeah. Yeah, it's not easy. I mean, I've done it twice and <laughs> it certainly took me longer to edit a film that I directed myself. So <laughs> now, it's up for doing it in 10 days. So. Now, I want to ask you something about uh, branding. Yeah. Because you've done a great job of branding yourself as an editor. You've built like this whole thing with the This Guy Edits and and a podcast and everything. So as just on a – I know you have your – basically an online business right now, your side hustle, if you will, um, yeah. of, of This Guy Edits, everything. But then you still edit and that's also a revenue stream. You're still That's your career. That's your income, which kind of feeds the other thing. Yeah. Uh, but on a – just a point of view like this, if I as a director were looking for an editor – and I happen to type in editor and I'm like, well, look at Sven. Look at what he's doing. You have built yourself up as an authority in this space where you might be the best editor in the world. You might not be that good. But at the end of the day, the assumption or the image of the brand that you've created says that you know what you're doing. And I also get a feeling about who you are as a, as a person, as a potential collaborator. That's such an amazing thing, and I have not seen much of it for editors. I've seen it for directors. I've seen it for writers even, cinematographers, but I don't see it often with editors. So I really want to talk to you about the, the power of branding, the importance of branding yourself as a post-production professional, if that's like all the editors out there who just want to be editors. Um, 
to brand themselves and how important and what you, and any tips you can give? Yeah, so branding, I think, is so important, especially now with the competition being what it is. Um, I'm not saying everybody needs to have a YouTube channel right. and needs to make a business, a side hustle out of the branding part. But I think it's important for editors to understand that they're not just um, somebody that is an artist, collaborator, but they actually stand for something. A, a brand is a promise of an experience. And you need to portray that to your client, to your director, what that experience is going to be like. You need to stand for something. You will always be listening. You will never refuse to make a note, uh, to, to do a note. Um, you will always be open to try something. You will be on time. Whatever these values are is what needs to be part of how you talk about your work so that you can get to those clients that really value that and are willing to pay you rate and that you that keep coming back so that you have a career where you can make a living and you can leverage up. You can go from one project and then take these opportunities where you can move up to maybe from cutting television to feature, whatever, wherever you are, from wedding to corporate, from corporate to TV. Um, there will always be these opportunities if you make this experience amazing for the client. Like I want the client to go through this cutting a project with me and then turn around and hire me for the next project and tell every one of their producer friends what an amazing editor I have. If they don't have a job for me, that these people start calling me. So that's what branding is all about. And in today's world, you've got to stick your, you got to, you got to rise above all of this other competition. And by branding yourself, uh, you definitely can. And you've done a fantastic job of it, sir. So my next feature, I might call you, sir. <laughs> yeah, be interested. It's gonna be interesting. What you're gonna do next? <laughs> now, um, and I always like asking editors this: What is the craziest thing that's ever happened in an edit suite that you've been a part of? Because I have my story, which I'll tell you, but I want to, I want to hear yours first. Okay, I was cutting an independent. You see how quickly he went feature. to that. Do you see how quickly he went to that audience? It was <laughs> probably like one or two a.m. Right. The director is James Franco. He walks in. Stop right there. That's all you late. need to do. <laughs> okay, look, go ahead. Um, he was out at night. He wasn't drinking or anything. He's okay. a pretty pretty straight shooter. Yeah. Comes in. Part of his entourage is Lindsay Lohan. Oh. She walks in <laughs> and just sits down on the floor next to me, like right at the monitor. Everybody's in the back on the couch watching mm. the, the scene. She just sits right there and just like gazes on the screen and says nothing. And I'm like, okay, this is this is how this we're going to be. This is my life. Go ahead. This is how <laughs> we're going to be cutting tonight. And then, yeah, we spent like a good two, three hours, and she was just looking at it, just looking at High it, as hell. saying anything. High as hell. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if it's the craziest, but that was pretty. pretty well, that's insane. A, that's pretty insane. Mine's is I was actually editing a commercial at uh, in Miami, and I had clients, and I had agency, and I had the client. So I had both in the room and in the middle of the cut, like, so because, and we, you know, commercials you take, it could take, I've seen commercials take three or four months to be cut back in the day. So it just spends money, 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 you know, it was the, back when the budgets were around and midway through our edit on the, on the commercial, uh, commercial, um, uh, campaign, 
the agency got fired. Mm. <laughs> so, but they still <laughs> got to finish this thing. So now you can sense the animosity in the room. And as an editor, you're just Switzerland, man. You're just, I'm just, I'm not getting involved. I don't know anything. So then a cut comes and now you know it's not about the edit. <laughs> it's about something else in the room. And I was in my late 20s, I think, or early 30s. And all of a sudden, they're like, Alex, what do you think of that cut? I'm like, I don't know. It could work this way. But what do you think of this idea? I'm like, I don't know. It could, it could work that way too. So I'm just completely Switzerland. And then they start going at each other. Like they start yelling at each other behind me. And I'm just, I'm, I'm like this. I'm like, I don't see anything. I'm just on my Avid. I'm just cutting. And all of a sudden, fists are thrown. And they start <laughs> fighting behind me. I was like, holy cow. They literally got on the floor. They start punching each other. I'm like, I don't know, I'm pulling one guy off. The other, you know, everyone's coming in. I'm like, I didn't have that. No, I'm like, are you, ki- are you kidding me? It, it was wow. a, it was an intense day. But note to everybody listening: if you're the editor in a situation like that, do not take sides ever. Take sides. So I'm I'm imagining too, like when you got a director and a producer, that must be difficult. Like if you got a big powerful producer and a big powerful director, and they both want two different things. What do you do? That's a question I'm going to ask you. Like, what do you do? If you got James Cameron, well, if it's James Cameron, you always have with James Cameron, obviously. But if you've got, I mean, that's just, a, I mean, there's, there's, you know, he's, he's James Cameron. But yeah. if you've got like a powerful producer and you've been spending a lot of time with the director and you've kind of befriended the director because you're spending 10 hours a day with them for months at a time, what do you do? What's the choice do you make? It's, it's kind of like Sophie's choice a lot of times because the producer is the one that hired you more than likely. And might be able to get you more work later, or is this? I, I don't know. What are the politics in that, in your opinion? Well, I think there are two two options. One is I will always side with the director, and okay. I'll make that clear. I'll just I'll point out. Look, if you want my opinion, I'm gonna I'm here to support the director, and so I I might go that route. I mean, it's really important that that relationship between the director and the editor. Mm-hmm is not in question. I need the mm-hmm. director to trust me that I have yep. his back. Yep. So that's priority number one. And that sometimes means the person that is cutting the check, I need to figure out a way how to make sure uh, the producer understands what my role is. Um, that's one. But it does help to sometimes be like Zen about it and try not to take a stand. It's <laughs> definitely true. It's rough. It's rough. Yeah. I do have a I do have a James Cameron story yeah, where anytime. it actually paid off. As to, many of those as you want, sir. Continue. To to stand up for something because I, I don't even remember what the exact specifics were, but something was wrong. He's like, somebody screwed up. This is not who thought about this idiotic idea to do it this way. Like shoot it this way or whatever and it was me so i was like nobody's silent room and i'm like just in the spur of the moment i'm like that was me i take full responsibility and like he he was about to explode and just the fact that i actually came up and came clean he it immediately changed he's like well we're gonna change this and he like became calm so it it also sort of taught me at the moment it's okay sometimes to screw up you if you own it you can actually get some some brownie points for just being courageous to 
to actually admit it. And, and my friend, courageous is not the word to use when you're just coming out of film school and you're standing up to Cameron and going, I did it. Sorry. That's generally when I, but I, I, I promise you that he probably respected you a hell of a lot more after that. Yeah. It felt like, okay, he, there's a little bit of, okay, well, there's some backbone here. Yeah. I can work with that. Now. So, okay. Any other James Cameron stories? Cause I just love hearing James Cameron stories. No. None that you can say publicly. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. No, I mean when you when you're dealing, and I, I mean, God, it's such a weird, it's such a weird place to be when you're an editor that sometimes you're at the you're at the service of uh, of working with the director. Sometimes as an editor, you feel so passionate about a cut, or you feel mm. so passionate about something you're doing, and you disagree wholeheartedly with the director. Where in your mind you're going he's going to ruin it or she's going to ruin this. Yeah. And that's a balance that's hard. And, it, and it's not just editors. It's every crew member that deals with the director. How do you deal? How do you come to grips with that? Because I know you want to, you know, be there of service to the director. And I tell you what I do. I always, I always offer to pay the, the bill twice. That's what I always, that's my, my saying. I'm like, okay. I'll offer to pay the check twice. I'll go, look, I really like this cut. I think the way she go, but this is this. No, but look, listen to it. This is it. No, no, I think we're going to go this way. Okay. And that's yeah. it because at that point I just can't, I can't fight anymore. And early in my career, I would, st- I would just be sticking harder. But as you got older, just like, you know what, man, it's just not my movie. I got to just be here at the service of the director. Um, so what do you, what do you say? Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I'm more passionate about actually showing my idea as opposed to having my idea be the idea that ends up being in the film Mm -hmm. as long as i as i was able to make my case that's most of the time that's really all i need to to satisfy my ego but sometimes (laughs) you do feel like oh this like this is really crucial this is a moment that's going to break the film and what i try to do is uh, there are a lot of little battles that i won't fight where i'll give the director whatever they want just to build up goodwill, build up goodwill, give them everything they want, even if I think, oh, this is not going to make the film any better. This is not going to have a big impact. Films are very, they have a duality. They either work or they don't. A scene either works or it doesn't. Right. Um, and once once I feel like it's working, just add all that to it, make it whatever. There are specific reasons that I don't have to understand. And then take that goodwill and every once in a while, go to the bank and say, okay, now I would like to withdraw some of that and say, okay, this is the moment you've seen me work with you all the way. But I think right now here, this is a, this is an important point where you should really think about whether we're going to go this way, predicting this is what's going to happen, what you're risking. And then see if the director will trust me at that point to say, okay, I'm just going to I'm just going to buy into this because you said so. That happens every once in a while. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes they like reconsider. They feel really strongly about it. And that's all I can do at that point. Sometimes you just have to let it go because you could be wrong too. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Um, I remember early, early in my career where I would literally just, I would pout. I would yeah. pout and I would just be like, I would throw a little bit of a hissy fit. I'm like, fine, I'll just edit this for you and I'll just do it. Watch. And I would, it was like, I call that angry editing. So you just like, yeah. just boom, 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 here, play. And then you would slam the space bar so it would play. <laughs> and then it would just play. And then, but the worst part about that situation is that if it worked, 
it's so hard to come back from that. <laughs> like, yeah. So I did that once or twice. I was like, you know what? Just keep quiet. Do what they want because you'll look like an absolute ass. When they look at you, like, it works, doesn't it? And you're like, damn it, it does work. God. That's a young editor's vibe. That's, that's yeah. a very young editor who does that, I hope. If there's older editors who still do that, that's another yeah. issue. <laughs> well, at least you're on fire. And when you're on fire, you do most of the time some pretty good editing. That's true. I mean, yeah, <laughs> when, when you're heated up, you're just like, yeah. just that energy flows through it. Um, now, uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions I ask all of my guests. Um, sure. what, would you, what advice would you give uh, a filmmaker or an editor specifically uh, advice you would give them that they want to break into the business today? Um, always be editing. So if you're, if you're looking for jobs, you need to be working on projects. There's mm -hmm. always something that you could be doing other than sending out resumes and uh, sending out emails and trying to talk to people. You need to be working on projects. Find a friend, find something on Craigslist that you can keep honing your skill. You're going to grow much, much faster that way. And uh, do you advise people buying their own systems or getting a system that they can at least work on by themselves? Uh, I would. I mean, if they have the means, I would definitely say, have you, I mean, you should, why would you not be editing? Uh, why would you not be cutting on your phone if that's the only thing you can, you have? Um, but there's editing software is for free. You probably want to have a computer if you, if you're working in the business as period as a, as a business. Yeah. You should probably uh, have a computer. But if you can't afford, you can be cutting on an iPhone. There's great software out there. I think it's called Luma Fusion, mm -hmm, yeah. and you could be cutting cutting on that. It's insane. It costs twenty bucks. It's that software. Or, or even DaVinci Resolve is free. Yeah, and I don't know if they have a phone app. <laughs> they don't have a phone app, but it is a free uh, app on a Mac or PC. Uh, it's yeah. it's an excellent system. Um, Absolutely. Now, can you tell me what book had the biggest impact on your life or career? I mean, I always say my favorite film book is In the Blink of an Eye oh, by Walter Murch. What a great book. But the book that probably had the biggest impact is one that nobody's read. It's called Skywalking. Oh, yeah. I've and read it. I read it. I love Skywalking. It was a great book. By Dale Pollack, I believe. Mm -hmm. And he was the one that motivated me to try and go to film school here in America. And uh, he ended up actually being a teacher at AFI for me. So he's, he's been a great mentor. That's, awesome. That's a good book, everybody. Um, now, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? Um, really embrace rejection. Like failing yeah. is the greatest way to grow. I, I used to just waste so much time failing and then just being paralyzed <laughs> instead of failing and then say, okay, what's next? Yes. Um, that's that probably cost me 10 years. Oh, that my is. friend, it cost me many years like that too. <laughs> it's no, because if I always tell people, I, I preach this from the top of the mountain as well, I'm like, fail and fail often because it's the best teacher you're going to have, and you don't learn from winning. You just don't. Yep. You don't learn from winning. You learn from failing, and you can't let it paralyze you. When it paralyzes you, that's your ego going. <laughs> like that it's yeah you're trying to process it it's, it's like, like grieving uh, yeah, it's like and, oh my my like, poor little ego is hurt I'm like no man you just gotta keep going and uh, and everyone who's ever made it in this world in the our business or in general but like let's just keep our business they all failed you yeah. know the terminator let's stay on camera the terminator came out of one of cameron's biggest failures piranha to the spawning 
Yeah. You know, awesome. and, and, and that's, you know, and Spielberg had failures, like look at 1941 for God's sakes. And then he did yeah. that little thing called Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, so it all kind of, it all works out at the end. Um, now the most difficult question of all three of your favorite films of all time. Oh, that's an easy one. Um, the Big Blue, Le Grand Bleu. Oh, by I Luc love Besson. Luc Besson. I love um, that Prince, movie. Prince of Tides by Barbara Streisand. Wow. And Rear Window by Alfred Hitchcock. Very eclectic group, my friend. Very eclectic. Yeah, one is visual, one is drama, and one is suspense. Oh man, well, Rear Window is just a masterpiece. Uh, I did enjoy Princess Bri- Princess Bride. Uh, well, that's also a good movie, but Prince of Tides. <laughs> Uh, yeah. But the first time in the show's history, uh, Big Blue. Uh, it's a Big Blue, right? It's a Big Blue, yeah. Yeah, the Big Blue. I absolutely Incredible love film. What an amazing film. That was during my video store days. So I yeah. remember it very, very clearly. And that's when I was kind of introduced, I think, to – no, Luke Bassano was introduced by La Femme Nikita. But then I went back to look at his other work. Other work. He did Subway as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah, Subway and a couple other movies. Underground? Subway? Yeah, yeah. Under, yeah it was called Subway. Yeah, it was about the, the, the London Underground or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but everybody listening, you've got to go find the big blue. It has a young Jean Reno in it, who yeah. is absolutely brilliant based on a true story. What a, what a, I miss Luke. I miss Luke's, uh, I miss <laughs> yeah. Luke. Like, Have you seen, what was in the film that he recently did? Yeah, I did see it. The Battle Something of the Stars or whatever that sci-fi movie was. I, I thought he was back. Like the first 10 minutes, I'm like, oh, this is incredible. This is Fifth Element again. We're back with the Fifth Element. This is awesome. And then, and then it, it just... just um, and the Leon. Yeah, or, and Leon. I mean, yeah. can you not? The Big Blue, you should see on the big screen, though. If you, it's, it's wild. You good, lo- good luck. <laughs> yeah, good yeah. luck. Um, but yeah, Big Blue. If you're if you're gonna watch Basson films, all right, I'm gonna just geek out on Basson for a second. I'm gonna go Big Blue, La Femme Nikita, um, Leon, and uh, Fifth Element. I think, and that that's a good crossword. Yeah. That's a good crossword. And what was the one he did, the black and white one with about the uh, guardian angel? That was beautiful too. I love that movie. It was. It came out like a few, like a while ago. No, you're not talking about Joan of Arc. Right? No, no, no. It's a no. It was Joan of Arc. No, it was a white. black and white movie called I think something Angel, and it was a Luc Besson film. It was all shot in black and white with this beautiful supermodel is the angel. You see, now you have to go look for this film. What you yeah, have to go see it. Yeah, and there's like this aware. little French dude who's like, you know, he's an ugly little dude, and he's got like horrible life, and this beautiful supermodel, literal angel, comes in to guide him through. His okay. life. Oh, it's so, and it takes all place in Paris, of course. And great. Is it like a take on Wim Wenders movie, or not at all? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It might. It might be a little bit, but it's kind of like it's almost kind of like it's a Wonderful Life, kind of. Okay. But not as Frank Capra. Um, yeah. it, it's like if Luc Besson would make It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> It does sound a little like Wings of Desire. I think. Yes, a little bit, but not as no, because Wings of Desire they kind of fall in love. This is a little. A little bit different, a little bit more, a little bit more violent, uh, <laughs> because it's Luke. But it's a great film too, as well. Um, now, where can people find you and the amazing work that you're doing? It's fun. Um, on YouTube, you can search for thisguyedits.com. That will take you to the channel, or you can. Uh, did I say .com? That's yeah. the website, thisguyedits.com. <laughs> um, yeah, 
that's there. It's all the same handle, Twitter, this guy edits. There's a Facebook group, which I really enjoy because we actually get into like discussing some of the topics we deal with. So people can give me feedback. We can like crowdsource some of the research, that kind of stuff. So Facebook group, this guy edits. And the funny thing is, after you came up with the brand, this guy edits, I've noticed that this audio guy shows up and this other guy shows up and this other thing. So I was like, oh, so it started something. Now all of a sudden, like all these other brands are popping up like, well, I'm this guy audio records and <laughs> this guy production designs and it's like all these things have popped up afterwards. But you were the originator, sir. Nice, nice. <laughs> Thank you so much for dropping some amazing oh, yeah. knowledge bombs on Good the tribe fun. today, brother. So I appreciate it, man. Absolutely. Take care. I want to thank Sven for coming on the show and dropping those major editing knowledge bombs on the tribe today. Sven, thank you so much for taking out the time. I truly, truly appreciate it. If you guys want to check out Sven, his work, his YouTube channel, I have all the links on the show notes at IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 323. If you haven't already, please leave a review for the show at filmmakingpodcast.com on iTunes. It really, really helps the show out a lot. I truly appreciate it, guys. And guys, also want to thank you all and for all the tribe members who have purchased my book, Shooting for the Mob. It has now made it a bestseller on Amazon. I am so humbled and grateful for it. The reviews keep coming in. If you have not left a review on Amazon, please just go to shootingforthemob.com and leave a review on Amazon. That is super, super important to me, and it really helps this book get out to as many filmmakers, and everybody else in the world. It really, really would help me out a lot. So thank you guys again for all the support. I truly, truly appreciate it. I am working on some cool stuff for the tribe, some pretty epic things. I can't keep, you know, I got to keep it under the belt right now, but some very, very cool stuff. So keep an eye out and an ear out for that. And that's the end of another episode of the Indie Film Hustle podcast. As always, keep that hustle going, keep that dream alive, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia.